0: to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of veritas at veritasradio.com i'm your host mal fambergas and i sincerely thank you for joining me once again and if this is your first time or the truth journey brought you here welcome home and to listen to tonight's full interview you know what to do by now after so many years just go to veritasradio.com and subscribe You will receive your login immediately. And don't forget to check Sanitas Radio. It's already on Season 2. A great transformation taking place there, not only for our listeners, but for me in particular. And also, we're just exploring new areas. Formidable guests. You have to just take a look at it. And if you really want to make a difference, invest in yourself. Go to SanitasRadio.com to learn more. Was Atlantis real? We'll probably never be able to prove such a rich and powerful land that suddenly went belly up in the Atlantic Ocean never existed. The story of Atlantis is usually referred to as a parable and as such is not intended to be taken literally. But there is nothing in the story that proves it's made up. Even serious geologists can't entirely debunk it. In 2005, according to About.com's geology guide, There was a conference to discuss possible locations for Atlantis. The story of Atlantis comes to us from Timaeus, a Socratic dialogue written in about 360 BC by Plato. Are Atlantis a Lemuria mythology, or were they real? To explore this, tonight's special guest is Shirley Andrews, right now on Veritas. Shirley Andrews has had a lifelong interest in prehistory and has conducted research both in the U.S. and at the British Museum Library in London. She has traveled from the islands of the Azores to ancient monasteries high in the Himalayas to uncover the truth. Shirley has written two well-received books, Atlantis' Insights from a Lost Civilization and Lemuria and Atlantis, Studying the Past to Survive the Future, both of which have been published in several languages, she combines her passionate interest in Atlantis, her world travels, and the knowledge of many scholars into her research, writing, and public speaking. And for more information, visit her website at www.atlantisinsights.net, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Northeastern Massachusetts, I would like to welcome Shirley Andrews. Hello, Shirley, and welcome to Veritas.
1: Well, hi, I'm excited to be here.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. And for a long time, I've been trying to to discuss more of Atlantis. We've discussed that in the past, but having received both of your books in the past couple of days, I really, really enjoyed how you have connected some dots. And as I said during the intro, we think of Atlantis, we think of Plato, we think of maybe it being a parable. But you think that this could be real, not only Atlantis, but Lemuria, I'm always interested. How did you become interested in Atlantis?
1: Well, that's pretty simple. I mean, as a small child, I was sure there was an island in the Atlantic Ocean called Atlantis. I can remember my mother finally getting out a map and showing me it's not there. But I never forgot it. I I just knew, always interested in prehistory. And I came to believe that earthquakes, floods, volcanic eruptions destroyed at least one advanced civilization in the past. And then, of course, I got more and more interested as I had time after my six kids to spend time like at the British Museum Library. And I came to realize that in Eastern Europe, scientists who focus on Atlantis are highly respected by their colleagues. It's even in Russian school books. I did a book talk in Phoenix. A man came up afterwards. He said, I'm from Poland, and we learned about Atlantis in school there. So, anyhow it was easy.
0: When we think of the word, well, the, the, the term Atlantic Ocean, I'm always wondering, why is it called Atlantic Ocean? Does it have anything to do with Atlantis being there, or was it named after Atlas, a character from Greek mythology who supported the heavens on his shoulders?
1: Well, that's a good question, um, because I think there's certainly a correlation. Um, you know, Atlas was, he was definitely connected to Atlantis, so, Probably. I mean, the Atlantic Ocean, why is it called that? Um, I'm not sure.
0: When and where do you think Atlantis was?
1: Well, Plato tells us it was outside the Straits of Gibraltar in the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, this puts it on pretty much the Atlantic Ridge. I believe that the Azores, Cape Verde Islands, Madeira, those are were mountain tops at the time of Atlantis. And it started probably uh, before 200,000 BC. We don't really know, but the Atlantic Ridge was uh, well above the surface, and uh, it's like a mountainous part of the ocean floor. But along the, um, there's a lot of proof, though too. I mean, they they can uh, go down and bring up fresh cores of freshwater algae from inside where Atlantis was, from the Atlantic Ridge and coral and so forth are all where once above the surface area that was once above the surface so anyhow it gradually disappeared it's the most active volcanic area in the world today even under the ocean the atlantic ridge is constant volcanic eruptions and iceland is the only part of that area about left of the atlantic ridge It's above the surface really and you know how they have terrible uh, earthquakes and volcanic eruptions there. Yeah. So it slowly disappeared. Uh, Plato refers to as an island chain, um, um, I, as a large island, sorry, with, with a chain of small islands that connected it to the continent beyond. And it's really interesting that back in 350 B.C., Plato knew about the American continent. It, it landed, but mostly the Atlanteans, they settled all around the Atlantic Ocean. And um, by 20,000 BC, they have a thriving community on the Bahama Bank in the area of Vimini, Andros, uh, Cuba. All that was, um, at that time during the Ice Age, the ocean waters were 350 feet lower than they are today. This is why they find these ruins of megalithic stones that are under the water now. But during the Ice Age, that period of time was above the surface because the uh, water of the oceans was incorporated in the snow and ice of the glaciers. And then about the when, well, it gradually disintegrated, and by 10,000 B.C., that was the final sinking of Atlantis, and things happened um, to the whole Earth at that time. Um, It was sort of the end of the Ice Age and so forth.
0: When we hear of Egyptian history, we mostly learned it from the Greeks. Same with Atlantis and Plato. Where do you think Plato's information came from?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, When his good friend Socrates died, he left Italy for a long period of time, and he traveled. Uh, He may have gone to the library of Alexandria. He spent, we knew, no, he spent... Pretty much time. Oh, he went to Egypt. He paid for the trip with edible oils. That's all I know about that one. What he's searching, he's looking. He's heard this story as a child, and he's just wondering about it. So he bet, spent uh, time in southern Italy with a group of uh, people who, perhaps, they had been students or students of Pythagoras, and they were very interested in. What, had, what the world had been and so on and so forth. And I think he learned a lot there. But he didn't, he didn't write about it right away. He didn't write about it until just, I think, two or three years before he died. And my theory about that is that it is a theory. They say that some of these secret organizations, uh, if you reveal the information that they have, then your life is in danger. They really guard it uh carefully, I mean back in three fifty b c anyhow, so I think that's um was another source besides what he says uh from his oh was it like a great great uncle who had gone to Egypt and read it on um like pillars and so forth there, which was a common way they also had um in I saw in Egypt a lot of the at hieroglyphics on the walls of the temples and things, which I'm sure must talk about the history.
0: Well, that's you a good
1: question. You know, I've <laughs> been asked that before. I like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the Library of Alexandria. Do you think the Library of Alexandria was lost, fully lost, or was the knowledge sequestered by a few? Oh. Maybe, just maybe, people like, say, Christopher Columbus, may have had ancient maps that helped them find the, quote-unquote, new world.
1: Oh, he did, yeah. And he had a, was it his father or father-in-law, who was a ship captain, and they passed these lines down maps. They, the maps were kept in um, countries where it was a dry climate. What happened was that when the library was being destroyed in Alexandria, some of the kings of North Africa uh, they realized the value of some of the stuff, and they, they went and got it and kept it, and they kept it for hundreds of years. And it, some of it turned up in Spain when the um, Moors were there uh, for, what, 800 years or something, a long period of time, and they brought some information with them. Um, so I think that's certainly this was one source of... And also it was a source of knowledge about Atlantis. Uh, There was a man named Michael Scott. He was a Scotsman who in the 13th century went to Spain and read some of the things that had come, uh, that the the, um, people from Africa had brought with them and learned a little bit about Atlantis and them.
0: Years ago, Shirley, I met a. don't mean to deviate from the matter at hand, but I think this is all interesting. And at the end, it all connects... I met a university professor here at the University of Arizona about 15 years ago, and she told me in private, on the side, she said to me, Mel, Christopher Columbus was not Italian. He was a Sephardic Jew from Catalonia, and during the Inquisition times, he had to pretend he was Italian in order to get funding for the discovery of America. Have you heard Mm -hmm. that story before?
1: No, but I mean, I knew he wasn't what he said. He didn't come from where he said he came from. I thought he had come maybe from Italy. I'm not sure. Um, but anyhow, no, that's that's a good story that makes sense to me. But um, he wasn't the first person to travel like that, really.
0: No, the, uh, the Chinese and uh, the Vikings and other civilizations, too, weren't they?
1: Sure. There were a lot, a lot who went there. Some some It was hard for people to get out of the Mediterranean, um, but Spain, they could. I mean, I guess was, somebody was guarding the straits there.
0: When you say it was tough for them to get out, was it because of the, the psychology of belief that if you leave, you're going to be falling from the precipice of the flat earth, or was it something else?
1: Well, I, I think... Do you really think back in the 15th century they really thought the earth was flat? Maybe. Some people did, but there were also... You can go back thousands of years and some of the learned scholars knew better. Uh, but I don't know. I think that was something perhaps it was like to scare people from going out and finding treasures that might be there. I don't know.
0: Right, right. And with ground-penetrating satellite technology that we have available today, wouldn't it be not easy, but easier to determine if these two continents, Atlantis and Lemuria, were there?
1: Um, ground-penetrating radar... We, You know, they're wonderful. Uh, there was a, a Russian, his last name is Zirov, who was like um, an ocean geologist. I don't know whatever you call him, but he became thoroughly convinced that that area was above the surface, the Atlantic Ridge. And his book is just wonderfully full of details and explanations. And you look at the Azores Islands, they were the mountaintops, and uh, they go straight down to the ocean. I was there, and there weren't any beaches or so forth, because this, you know, there's like the tops of the mountains. There's one island that's totally, obviously, an old volcano, Pico. Um, But I'm not sure where, if I'm wandering from your question or not. No, that's fine.
0: That's fine. Uh, I think of the Yonaguni pyramids in in Japan. You know, I'm surprised that people like uh, Dr. Robert Shock he says that that's just a natural natural formation. But, you know, I've seen people like Graham Hancock and his wife dive and take, you know, plenty of footage to show that those are man-made. What's your take on
1: it? Oh, definitely. Well, I don't know as that much about those specific ones, and I've, I've seen the pictures of the divers, and it's very convincing. But there's another one. It's called, if you, if you can have your listeners go to www.templeofmu.com, and that shows off the coast of Okinawa, Underwater Ruins. With people, you can, and there's a, someone swimming in there. Or he's not swimming; he's scuba diving, or he's something snorkeling. But um, there, and the ruins off the coast of India—I mean, those are definitely were a city. It's five miles long, and all these things were, of course, above the surface. It's not that far down. So uh, well, I don't know what, how this all got started, but there's no doubt that in the Pacific, it's pretty easy to find underwater ruins. It's not so true in the Atlantic, where it has a lot of shifting sands, and of course I mentioned the lava. They can test the lava that comes from uh, the Atlantic Ridge, and they can tell when it erupted above the surface. You know, that's now covering covering things to land down there now, by the wall, by the air in it, and it's pretty much like there was the top layer erupted in 10,000 B.C. about.
0: I'm on the website templeofmu.com. My goodness, this is just impressive. What do you think? That is incredible. Ninety. The the, the divers have their instruments there and they're measuring, and they have you know perfect ninety-degree angles between the steps. What do you think this was?
1: You mean was it? It was a temple.
0: No, obviously it was a temple. It was a civilization that lived there in the area. But who? Who were they?
1: The Lemurians.
0: The Lemurians So this was part of Lemuria.
1: Well, sure. Anything in the Pacific. Um, Lemuria was. um, It was an island civilization. It wasn't just one big large mass, and uh, it spread all over the Pacific. And they they were also seafaring, like the Italian, like the Atlanteans. I mean, they really, you know, they're very knowledgeable sailors, but. They held it together with an excellent system of government. And, um, I mean, now something like Easter Island is totally isolated. Well, they can show where there was other land, not that far from it. Um, So where were we at? We got into out. Lemuria was in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, there are many, many legends around the Pacific about it. In Hawaii... Uh, the, the natives told the missionaries that La Maria extended from Easter Island to Hawaii and it was about 3,000 miles wide. Well, who knows? I mean, it was, uh, but uh, that one thing that I'm so amazed at are the megalithic ruins on islands in the Pacific. And the latest one that they're getting all excited about is called Gobekli Techi. Do you know anything about Turkey, that?
0: Absolutely. Gobekli Techi. Yes.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's pretty exciting.
0: Supposedly the oldest one ever found.
1: Yeah, yeah, and they're just starting to get, to realize. There's maybe, there's things underneath it even. They don't know, but it's, yeah, that's, we're, that's going way back.
0: So, why is it that current history, his hyphen story, why is it that before 10,000 years ago, it's almost as if there's information gap. We don't know anything beyond that, but we have Gobekli Tepe, we have some other ruins around the world that predate that, even some artifacts that have been found lately that were obviously man-made that are millions of years old. Why is it that we can't see beyond that and and, and academia doesn't want to go there?
1: Well, academia doesn't want to go there because if they don't go along with what they were taught, what the professor taught them, they will just be ousted. They can't, you can't mention the word Atlantis in the United States. uh, It's much better other places. Um, But it's just the the way the, the, um, the, well, the the educational institution is. They'd have to rewrite all the history books, all kinds of things just, they won't listen they won't open their eyes. But it's becoming more and more difficult um, with the advent of DNA and things like that. They're going to have to. Well, I mean, you know, Columbus discovered America for an awfully long time. And I think they finally agree. Yes, the Vikings came. Well, so did a lot of others. There's a wonderful book called America's BC. I don't know. Bertie Feld is the name. I'm not sure. And they, I mean... The re- all over this country, there are stones that have different languages on them and say that the Egyptians were here, the Romans were here. It wasn't Columbus anything very unique.
0: You mentioned that it's in the United States when you can't even utter the word Atlantis or, you know, <laughs> no, <laughs> your, yeah. your tenure will be revoked. Yeah. So you've visited many, many countries in, and perhaps institutions, a- educational institutions. Have you found that other countries can talk about Atlantis and maybe even Lemuria on a serious basis?
1: Well, certainly there's a lot of information, as I said, in the British Museum library. That's where I found the book by Zirov, the Russian underwater specialist. But um, I have not um, had any in touch with academics in, um, in other countries that would, you know, I know you go to, in India they say, "Oh, Jesus came here," and that's all they took back that far but um uh I don't know if, where else i would you know where they say there's the one thing I mean I just remembered what the Russians have found in uh, just um below the oh, what's the big lake up there because they found the ruins um, of a city that really goes far, far back uh, in, in the Gobi Desert, which was, it was a, the capital of, this is a, the Iger, uh, Uighur civilization in the Gobi. The capital is Karakora, and uh, that was a huge empire. Uh, it was at its height, about 17,000 B.C. This comes from the Chinese who know about it the Russian explorers dug down through 50 feet of gravel, boulders, and sand. It's south of Lake Baikal, that's what it is. And they they learned that these people knew astrology, math, they wrote, they read, um, medicine. they mined, they did agriculture, uh, beautiful things that they mined and made of gold. All these were they found down in the... And what happened, apparently, was that when the, and around the time of a great flood and very high, uh, ocean waves and so forth, I mean, unbelievable tsunamis, that the, go, the Gobi, which had been fertile, was covered with this 50 feet of gravel, boulders, and sand. It just came in and wiped out the civilization. Some of these, some of these people, uh, it was a big, huge civilization. Are down in there in on the border of China, near Mongolia, and the um, Chinese are trying to eradicate them. They have issued horrible you know, regulations, laws, made life very unpleasant for them. You know, there were a couple of them in Guantanamo, and they, they didn't let them out. They didn't do anything wrong. But they knew that if they went back to China, that was the end of them. And I don't know what's happened to them. I went to uh, Middlebury College, and there was a wom- woman there who spent a lot of time studying them, uh you know, within 10 years. I don't know if she'd go... She, I never could establish any communication with her that they really were the remains of a big civilization that once was there. But anyhow... Uh, some of I mean like the Russians and the chinese are are willing empty open minded about that
0: well the chinese uh that they don't want to admit that there were some red headed mummies that have been found,
1: yeah, yeah, I saw pictures of those, and you know I think those are the long heads, the shape of the heads is, and uh they're turning up in a lot of places i mean I mean
0: the elongated skulls,
1: yes huh no, not i mean they're but the, the, there's also a theory, you know, how I saw in Mexico, things they put on the babies so they could make their meld their right. heads into that shape. Mm-hmm. Or even you look up pictures of Cleopatra, she had a head like that. A lot of people, a lot of, and it's, you know, went, there were people with those heads, they figured, and they were being copied because they were so intelligent or whatever, and making babies have heads that shape. But uh, I'm pretty sure what you're talking about in northern Russia are the longheads. And they had tartan clothing and quite amazing. No, well, big, so-
0: speaking you know, of the elongated skulls, you have the Paracas, uh-huh. uh, Peru elongated skulls too. And I think it would be very easy to determine if the skull was uh, elongated manually or if it was the way it is because it was a natural occurrence. But as you say, they probably were trying to emulate another Mm -hmm. race. Mm -hmm. What happened to that race is the question.
1: Hmm. Who knows? I haven't, I haven't an answer. I mean, again, we can take a natural catastrophe that would have destroyed a lot. Uh what do you think?
0: Well, same with the giants. Uh, we have a lot of listeners around the world, and one of our listeners, his father, lives in Iran. And in 2011, I think it was, there was an earthquake there. I'm not sure if it's north or the south. Uh, but after the earthquake, a small city was unearthed, And wow. archaeologists went there, and, and they found mummies, women mummies about nine Mm -hmm. feet tall, and I was talking to to a researcher the other day saying that was the exact location of the Amazon women. Again, we think of that Mm -hmm. being mythology, but look, Mm -hmm. his history has to be demythologized more and more every day.
1: Sure, right. And, you know, these myths were passed down very carefully. Um, The Native Americans would pick someone in each tribe, usually a woman, to be the memorizer. I mean, they had storytellers, but that's different. And these people really carefully. And the Vedas—that's where they came from in India. They were all passed down, father to son, or whatever. But um, the Amazons—that's a whole other. They weren't the only. I don't think the only ones were in Iran. But in the giants—that's what I thought about. My gosh, so many people found giants and. In the the Middle West, when they were planting the fields for the first time, they'd find these huge caskets and great long skeletons in them. The common thing was to send them off to the Smithsonian, where they disappeared. And over and over, I run into that kind of a story.
0: I'm looking at the pictures of uh, the Crescent Lake that you were referring to, the Gobi Desert. And just as oil and water don't mix, so do springs and deserts. You look at these pictures and you think... This is out of place, right there in the middle of nothing. How do you think this happened?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what they say is the the biblical flood destroyed came over the eastern half of of the Iger's land, and today it's under the. You know who? uh, Edgar Casey. I don't know if your readers know. Of course, sure. He talked so much about the Iger civilization. He didn't talk much about Lemuria, although he said the Lemurians came there. He also mentioned Atlanteans coming there and helping the Ayers and so forth. And he called called it Mongoloid land and different things. He talked about the Temple of Gold, the City of Gold, the Temple of the Sun. All these things he said were there. Today they're under the desert. And it's a big area that he includes, Indochina, which is several countries. But, um, oh, this is the DNA thing is... Like in if the Atlantean um, survivors that we can mm-hmm. check and so forth, they all had a type of DNA, which um, is mitochondrial DNA X. And then you find a little bit of it. There's nothing in the Far East. That's all type B in the in Pacific area or whatever, except in Gobi land in this area. Um They found some uh with type X blood, and you know there 's a lot of talk about the Landians going there to help these people. Well, they went all over the world, but anyhow that 's sort of an interesting sideline
0: well, then you have the Homo Hofluoresensi in the Indonesia area, this little you know little two th- things yeah the mm-hmm. little the, the mm-hmm. little people and mm-hmm you wonder what happened to them as well. You know, we can always attribute it to cataclysms, cataclysms but you mentioned Atlantis was in the Pacific and Lemuria. I'm sorry, no. Atlantis in the Atlant- Atlantic Ocean and Lemuria in the Pacific. But when, right. where, I'm sorry, when did they, when was that civilization active and were they active at the same time?
1: Yeah, they were. Anyhow, in the, in the Pacific Ocean, um Lemuria, I mean, and I think they know this from studying the land. They it was there long before Atlantis. I mean the civilization. But anyhow, um it gradually disappeared in the same way that the that Atlantis did, uh, from natural catastrophes or weather, whatever. And its um last big destruction was about ten thousand B C which is the same as what i attribute to atlantis you know a date a lot happened on the surface of the earth in 10000 bc millions of animals disappeared from the north and south american continent alone yeah. uh, to say nothing of people but when you say no no records well i think it's because they just didn't survive the records didn't survive except by word of mouth from whatever happened on the earth at that time,
0: because of the oral tradition and the initiates, mm-hmm. and do you think the Dogon, the Zulus, for example, they knew that there were extraterrestrial races coming down here? I mean, they had the uh, the, the Dogon knew about Sirius B many many years before Western man even found out. They were ridiculed when they used to say Sirius B exists. Do you think these tribes, the Zulus, the Dogons and some others, they may have knowledge that's passed, still being passed on via initiation?
1: Some people have oh yeah the go. some people have been have tried to study them, but I guess it's hard to get their confidence <clears throat> um. Initiations are interesting. There was a British guy, uh, Louis Spence. If you read my first book, you saw references to him. <clears throat> he was fluent in French, German, um, Spanish, I don't know, several languages. But during, he was also like a storyteller. He could remember things. And during his initiation into one of the sacred fraternities or so forth, they read them in different languages Information that had been passed down for thousands of years, and that's where some of his stuff about Atlantis comes from, if he remembered it. <clears throat> but he, oh, he was he was a very respected member of the um, Geological Society of England, and so on and so forth. He was, you know, but a lot of those people were members of secret societies too, like Francis Bacon.
0: Oh, don't get me started on Francis Bacon. <laughs> we can talk about him for an entire uh, interview. But just to a quick parenthesis, when we think of these civilizations, this is before the printing press and the papyrus and they had to, to transfer knowledge via word of mouth or oral tradition. And then you look at today where most people don't even remember their own telephone number. <laughs> because we have technology that has taken over. If a electromagnetic pulse bomb were to happen or another cataclysm and technology disappears. Mm
1: -hmm. What would happen to
0: all the knowledge that we have today?
1: It wouldn't survive. I mean, nothing on paper or metal or only if it's in stone. Stone. For, you know, a natural catastrophe. Eventually, I think it's not in stone. You know, they used to say to write it down is to forget it put it on the paper and it's out of your mind.
0: That is so true and even the late Zachariah Sitchin he used to go to presentations and hold one piece of paper in one hand and a and a stone tablet in another one and he would say if a cataclysm were to occur which of mm-hmm. these two you think would survive and sure. that's exactly the case. But um how did you no, learn
1: He's a great guy. I saw him he did a lecture at the A where at the like the conference I went to last week. Mm-hmm came and did one there once. He was old and in a chair, but he was with it. Well, anyhow, that's another subject. you have a question?
0: No, no. I you know, talking about Zakaria Sitchin, uh, I was lucky to have done his last interview before he died, but, you know, some people tell me Yes, Mel, but think about where his office was located. It was in the Rockefeller Plaza in New York, which is owned by the Rockefellers. And if we know something about the Rockefellers, we know that they they try to keep a lot of information away from the public, so it makes you wonder. I'm not trying to take credit away from Sitchin, but it makes you wonder, Shirley.
1: Do you think he was saying what he had been told to say?
0: Or maybe he was not saying what he was supposed to say, or maybe you know, There were many of the stone tablets that were not translated, and some people who have translated them say that Nibiru, for example, was never found in any Mm -hmm. of the tablets. So I'm on the fence. Where did he
1: get it from? Yeah, and why?
0: And why? Unless he's trying to perpetuate the mythology of history to keep us looking in the wrong place. I mean, did he ever talk about Lemuria or Atlantis? No.
1: No, right, right um that's they, those are very interesting questions um there's a guy who was a good personal friend of his who does a, he runs things at a lot of things at the a r e the place in Virginia Beach where I just right? was he's the one who got Sitchin to come down there and talk. I would love to ask him those questions sometime.
0: What was his name know.
1: John van Auken. okay i don't um gosh i I mean, I agree that the Rockefellers have their own idea about what we should know, as does most of our newspapers and radios and so forth. But, wow, I don't a- know.
0: Another quick parenthesis, as you're mentioning some of this, you you recently attended a conference re- regarding Edgar Casey, and Eric Von Daniken was there. Yeah. Can you tell us some of the interesting things that you found during that conference?
1: Oh, yeah, This he was... this. Uh, This is just like last weekend that I was there. Anyhow, Van Donegan said that Herodotus, who I think was about in the 5th century B.C., he was, yeah, 5th century B.C., he he traveled. I keep coming to references to things he found in my work. He went to Egypt, and he went to North Africa, and so on and so forth. But he said that under the Great Pyramid, there was a lake. And in the lake, there was a sarcophagus. And everybody said, oh, that's desert. There couldn't have been a lake there, and so on and so forth. So von Donneken, uh decided to investigate, because I think he had pretty much faith in what Herodotus talked about. And if you go in the, I don't know if you've ever been in the Great Pyramid, but you go in, and you're very carefully directed as to where you can go. And there's one point where you are told, go to the right, but you could go to the left. And he said, if you go to the left, you gradually, it's downhill, down, 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 which he did. And he went with, he had obviously excellent cameras and lights, uh, amazing pictures, like um, like a movie or something, of the whole trip. So he goes down, and then he comes to a place where, you know, it was passageway, two ladders going down, which we see the pictures of, and they're steep and long. And you go down those ladders, and then he walked around some more down there, it was, and then he came to another. The passageway narrowed, and it went down again, and this one had only one ladder. So he went down the one ladder with pictures all the way, and he came to a lake. And... In the lake, you could see the sarcophagus. It was big, and he said he um, had—I don't know how he measured it, maybe just sight or whatever—because you couldn't get to it because it was in the wa- way out in the water. Um, that it was wider than the last passageway with the last ladder, so there must have been another entrance to that area. I've read that in some ways that they did initiations in under the pyramid in whatever was down there. But this this was quite exciting to see. And uh, certainly he, he hey, how did he do this? Because the Egyptian government's not all for this kind of exploration. And he just said um, thousands. We call it baksheesh uh, when you bribe and you sure. get in. Anyhow, that's, that was the, one of the most exciting things I saw. At that conference, I also saw um I can't remember whether it was Andrew Collins, I think maybe, oh he was very no he's he's all excited about the one in Turkey um go back to tepe. yeah, yeah, and we I saw a lot of pictures of that, all very you know. Just uncovering more and more, and there's lots more to go. And he talked about how these were hunter gatherers, people. I mean, this is way before anybody was supposed to be very intelligent. Amazing architecture and what they did. And there was a city not too far away, which they must have, the workers must have lived in, the mains of it. Well, he's getting all into it. I think he's going to write a book about it. Then another thing we saw, and I can't think of the name of it, it's in the Pacific on an island. David Hatcher Childress, do you know that name? He was Absolutely. First, he was he described last year's conference about getting to this ruins there. Oh, I wish I'd known I'll get the name of it. And um, it was a long, first a boat ride, and then it, then some jeep, and then another boat to this island where this thing is. thing. It's amazing. And he... Um, they had a, a jeep ride, uh, very unpleasant for many hot hours. But that was how you got to these ruins. And the ruins, oh, I, I wish I could think of a name for you, are um, co- they're all covered, but they've been uncovering them. It's sort of like they covered up Gobekli Teke, too. And then under it, there's another much, much older. I mean, we're going back into like 20,000 B.C. here. And I figure, well, a little more Lemuria in there. But uh, that was another exciting thing that was talked also talked about at this conference. People are interested in finding what what there was in the past that we don't know about.
0: Something is happening, Shirley. Really, something is happening where people are waking up to the fact that a lot of what we've been told is missing or it's not true. And we Mm -hmm. want to just find out. I mean, for example... Dr. Roger Lear, I don't know if you know who he, who he was. He passed away not too long ago. But uh, I heard many, you know, a couple of years ago, and I mentioned this story. I've mentioned this story many times on this radio show, but never, I never disclosed the name because he was still alive. He was told not to sh- tell it to people. But he went to Egypt a couple of years ago, and he was taken to certain areas of the Great Pyramid where most tourists don't go. And this area was completely pitch black. And all of a sudden, this specific tourist guide says, Okay, now turn on your flashlights and go from the bottom and start going up. So he turns. No, it's just
1: in the pyramid.
0: Inside the pyramid. Yeah, right, and right. He basically turns the, the flashlight and he starts going up, up, up. And it's a gigantic, gigantic statue. And when he goes up, mm. he sees that the face is almost like an astronaut with a Mm -hmm. backpack and almost like if it's carrying oxygen, like an ancient astronaut. They discussed this in Ancient Aliens, but this is something Dr. Roger Lear saw by himself. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Mm -hmm. they don't want to share this information with the world. Why is that?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'm sure the knowledge to build something like that, that they were, you know, that extraterrestrials helped. and. Why do the extraterrestrials want this pyramid there? It does seem to correlate with others in the world a little bit. Um, have you read about the one that they found in um, between two of the islands in the Azores?
0: Yes, I have. And the ones in Alaska as well and Antarctica.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know about that one. So, but um, I don't know, you know. You have someone like uh, Chris, what's his name, saying it was all for energy. Yeah. And he's got it all being like a big machine. The pyramid.
0: The Giza power Maybe. plant.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Um, I don't know. But that sounds fascinating about, this, about the statue.
0: Well, when you see the, the erosion around the, the pyramids and you see that it was created by water, at one point in time, it was probably... The the Nile River was very close. The, which one is the close one? Yeah, the Nile it was very close to the pyramids. And water would go under the pyramids in these honeycomb tunnels. And it was Tesla who recreated exactly the same thing in uh, Long Island, New York, I think it was. But he did the same thing as the pyramids. So there's some validity between what Tesla was doing and the pyramids. So maybe it was a power plant. Maybe... It was mm-hmm. remote electricity or worldwide just like we have Wi Fi, this could have been electricity for the entire planet.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. They had pyramids uh in um Atlantis. There's a lot of stories about them, but nothing specific. But as being connected with transmitting their energy from spot to spot. But this is this all sounds fascinating. Who
0: knows? When you have these all-of-a-sudden, like Graham Hancock calls them, you have the pyramids in Egypt and the pyramids in Mesoamerica. They more or less happen at the same time. Do you think that these civilizations had contact with one another? And do you think maybe these are the same people who maybe evacuated Atlantis, and one went to the east to, the, to Egypt, and one went to the west to uh, to mm mhm
1: mhm when oh you was, was this in my book that you read when um the king was sort of like the the head ruler of atlantis had two sons and he sent one to i think it was the grandson to the Central America and the other one to the east to egypt to the east yeah and the one who went to South America, Central America, p- wrote a book called I Am a Serpent.
0: I Am a Serpent?
1: Yeah. Huh. That's a whole nother subject.
0: Oh, cancel coadal, and we we demonized it in Western religion, yes.
1: Yeah. Well, anyhow, um, what was I was going to talk about something. That the oh, song... did they communicate with each other? Right. So... Uh, we have this man named Churchward who spent his life. Uh, he started out. Uh, he's British. Um, then he went to went to um, India and sent there in the army. He was an engineer. A colonel. And he, yeah, right. And he became friendly with a priest in a monastery. And he, they together. Eventually, the, the priest showed him some of these things that he had buried, uh, you know, down under the temple and so forth, is, to preserve them. And they saw that, um, he, he says, you know, this is how we became to believe in Atlantis. And I don't know whether, somewhere, so Church would spend his life exploring, I, I think it was in Lhasa, in Tibet, he found a map that showed a passageway in South America, so that the Amazon it was very wide at its mouth, and the delta was huge, like a huge, huge lake. And this was really interesting to me because I flew over that area in a single-engine plane. I was going to the Pantanal, which is uh, floods every year. It's in northwestern Brazil, and still floods. I mean, some areas don't, but the water is still there. So anyhow, they could sail from the, up the Amazon. The part where the mountains are was not that high up. Tiwanaku, the city, was was at sea level, there's so much in there to prove uh in the Lake Titicaca and other places other evidence of the ocean to show that it was once at sea level and the lot, the land pushed was pushed up um probably you know twelve to be to over twelve thousand feet high, but anyhow they had a canal which was still visible today they say in in the mountains. And from the canal, they went to Lake Titicaca and the the ocean. I mean, so you could go back and forth across South America. I have a better book of all this, I mean, a map of all this. But definitely uh, what the early missionaries to Spain found, this is back in the 16th century, in Tiwanaku, in the city, they had statues going down to the lake with different uh, facial characteristics Africa, Asia, and whatever. I mean, you know, the Atlanteans and the Lenorians were both there. I mean, this was just one of the places where they communicated. But they also uh, intermarried in the Yucatan. Uh, They both went there. And, yeah, well, they did get together. They had had a war, the Bird-Serpent War. Is remembered by Native Americans, and <clears throat> the Atlanteans were searching for more land because theirs was slowly disappearing, and there their was growing their population. So they went to the in the area of the Far East, and they had a, they had battles, which the Native Americans remembered. It went back and forth who was the winner, and uh, the, for so then the, the, uh, probably it was the Rama civilization ended up. Uh, sort of the winter um, no, the atlanteans did, and then uh, the grandsons this is many, many years later uh, of the people from the far east came and took their islands back but these are this is these are dances to the Native Americans to remember this before uh when before the when the glaciers were high before they melted, this was the time of it I think that's right. So, yeah, they communicated.
0: Well, it was Zacharias Sitchin who told me that in the Sinai Peninsula, there's a, there are dead areas that look almost like green glass. And if you take, yeah. you know, meters to measure radiation, you measure a lot of radioactive isotopes in that area. I wonder if there was a war there and nuclear weapons were used. And it makes you wonder if we evolve more technologically you know the certain intervals in in our history in human history and we evolve more technologically than spiritually and boom we wipe ourselves out and then we have to start all over again with sticks and stones do you think this has happened in the past
1: well are they've also found areas in india where uh what's the name of MOAGDO or something like that Where they have, the skeletons are radioactive and they're like lying down, like they were running from something. I mean, and you have the green glass and, I mean, it's pretty much evidence that there was a nuclear, uh, something was used there. It certainly didn't destroy the whole world or much civilizations, but sure, there's, I mean, they found, um, mines in Western Africa. That were near the co- that it could get to from the ocean, which had been mined way back when for uranium. So there's nothing to say. I mean, and, you know, when you, Edgar Casey talks about the one of the first, the first civilization in Atlantis, that was uh, had its problems, and I think he says they they were bothered by the huge animals that were bothering them, eating their children, eating their crafts, whatever. And they, they developed more and more sophisticated weapons and ended up aiming them into the caves animals and into the ground, which made earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, and they lost a lot of land. But it could have been radioactive. Who knows?
0: So this is so fascinating because these are all, a lot of times, coming from ancient books, even the... Mahabharata talks about this, and I have two quotes that i like to read. Ancient city found in India irradiated from atomic blasts, and it says, quote, The passage tells of combat where explosions of final weapons decimate entire armies, causing crowds of warriors with steeds and elephants and weapons to be carried away as if they were dry leaves of trees, says yeah. Ganguli. In another one, instead of mushroom clouds, the writer describes a perp- perpendicular explosion, which is billowing smoke clouds as consecutive openings of giant parasols. There are comments about the contamination of food and people's hair falling out. Mm, unquote. Right. And this is thousands of years ago.
1: And people going into streams for relief, and uh, there's something else. These are all the same, probably, that I, didn't, I have read about. But, yeah, well, there's no doubt that what that was. Uh, I had... No, I just said I'd heard about the Sinai also having um, a layer over the Earth of green, like green glass, like you know, from atomic bomb testing.
0: And of course, we only care. think of we only think of Oppenheimer on this side of the world, but we don't give credit to those people who had, you know, I don't know if the the word should be credit, um, but Machu Picchu, for example. You know, we think 1911, discovered by, uh, what was his last name, uh, Bingham, I think it was, he uh, ran, yeah, Bingham, 1911, but he was built in 1450. I always wonder, why would these civilizations build these cities so high above sea level unless unless they knew that one, white man was coming and it was going to decimate them, and they needed to go into hiding really high, or they knew another cataclysm would be coming, and that's where they would be saved. Which which one do you think?
1: Maybe a combination of both. I mean, Native American sacred sites are often very high up, like in the Black Hills, Even that was up high was once their sacred spots. But um, I'm sure they knew of tsunamis and things like that in the past, build high. Uh, if you, um, I don't have any any brilliant more thoughts. Uh, oh, I mean, also thirteen we thousand feet. Yeah, yeah. Tionaca's twelve thousand. We That's went right. right now. We went. To, I went on a um, uh, on a trek from Lima in Peru. We went eight hours on a local bus with the chickens and the whole bit. And then we, uh, we had a guide and we went and we walked and we walked and walked in the mountains there. And one day he said, I'm going to take you to a special place. And we went to um, uh, it was like a mountain, way high. And we went up and there was um, the re- remains of a building, buildings up there. And these were not like the typical Inca things. They were pre-Inca. They were smaller stones, but it was like five stories high, even what was left of it. And he said, archaeologists don't come here. They can't get here. And anyhow, nobody knows who built this stuff and why. But from up there, you could look in all four directions. And it just seemed like if you were in a flying vehicle, this would be a perfect place to stop off for a while. But I don't know.
0: No, it's just so like the Nazca it. lines.
1: hmm See them from above. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Why would they? Unless they had uh, balloons or some kind of craft that could be seen from above, why would they do that? For what reason?
1: I think they referred direction. Maybe I. I don't know. What have you read anything about why? So
0: many, so many. Some people yeah. say that they had the technology. Some people say that mm-hmm. there were directions, uh, just like the pyramids could have been used for multiple purposes, like uh, a power plant. They could be for initiations. They could be to store uh, seeds and, and uh, almost like a Noah's Ark in the event of a cataclysm. What a great place to, to deposit things. Um, mm-hmm. But how did you learn about anything about the civilization of Atlantis?
1: Um well, Edgar Casey was a was a very good source and pretty trustworthy. He did readings for people. Uh, usually uh, helping them with physical problems.
0: Sleeping prophet. Like what? The sleeping prophet.
1: Oh, the sleeping prophet. He could put himself into a semi trance, and um, he, he talked. He said the Sahara was fertile. He talked about how the Nile used to fly, flow to the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, all these things that have been slowly confirmed. He said there were women among the Essenes, so many different things. So when he talked about past lives, 700 of them, he did 14,000 readings altogether, most of them to past lives. 700 of them were about people who had spent time in Atlantis. So that gave a lot of interesting information. And then every once in a while, the people with him would try and, just have a little session and ask him questions. There was a couple of those are very good, with details of what it was like in Atlantis. But, you know, there are hundreds of books about Atlantis and some really good scholars. Uh, in uh, Edgerton Sykes was a British scholar. He studied legends, ancient manuscripts. He founded the Atlantis Research Society in Brighton, England. Um Asia Donnelly, and he was about well, back in the 19th century, but that was the first well that thing that showed that there was more than two Atlantis than just a myth and a story. And I mentioned Louis Spence, who was a member of an occult organization, but um, he could access to the ancient records of the arcane tradition. And he, he knew French, Spanish, German, and Greek, so he was pretty with it. Then there's one one wonderful um, American named Lucille Lucille Taylor Hanson. She was a Chicago lawyer, but she got interested in Native Americans and helping them to find their roots. Where did they come from? And she got to know them. She really spent a lot of time with them, and they began to trust her and tell her things they'd never tell the archaeologists. So she had a wonderful book, The Ancient Atlantic. And so... I guess the main answer is reading books, and there are over 150 books in, in the bibliographies of my books.
0: And so. we have to take our one and only intermission very soon. When we come back, I want to discuss blood types, and I wonder if there's a correlation here. Both of my parents had RH negative, negative factor. Also. Oh, neg- O negative. O negative, and the RH too. And I have uh, also something that I've never told because I don't want to believe. I want to know. But reading your book, let me just read this little paragraph here from the chapter titled Things. You met a man, let's just call him John because you never found out what his name was. But Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. said to you, quote, I heard you mention Atlantis, and I just have to ask you a question. I occasionally dream of a time when I lived in Atlantis, and those dreams are usually pleasant experiences from which I learned something. Can you please try to explain it to me? And I'll discuss this on the way back because I was born literally feet away from the ocean at a hospital right next to the ocean. I grew up in the Caribbean in an island. I had to be in the ocean, and now I lived in, in a place that you're very familiar with, Tucson, Arizona, in the desert. What but was I have the island? Puerto Rico.
1: Oh, Puerto Rico. Okay. Puerto
0: Rico, but now I live in the desert and I have to travel to the ocean every so often, almost as if I have to recharge my batteries. I have dreams every so often where I feel I'm in this area that has a lot of ocean, a lot of green, and I feel so peaceful. It doesn't look mm-hmm. like today's world. But after reading the, this part of your book, I wonder if other people, and as you said, 50% of the people that went to Edgar Casey reported that perhaps they were from Atlantis. I want you to discuss this very interesting. How can people buy Lemuria and Atlantis in your first book, Atlantis, Insights from a Lost Civilization?
1: Go to Amazon. (laughs) No problem.
0: And your website, AtlantisInsights.net, correct?
1: Right, right. If they just put my name into Amazon, it'll all come up.
0: Well, folks... Yeah. very fascinating I've always been fascinated by Atlantis and now we're adding Lemuria too we're going to discuss a lot of Lemuria when we come back this is Mel Fabregas I'm here with my special guest Shirley Andrews don't go anywhere thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview to listen to the rest go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe you will receive your login immediately we'll take a short intermission listen to some music and we'll be right back Enjoy.